welcome to Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history and drink beer. I'm Luke, and I'm joined in the bunker with the man who still can't believe he got a woman to marry him. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Well, Luke, she knew what this was, <laughs> but I also used to be in shape. That's true. Look, you know I love my wife, and I let my wife know all the time I'll never, ever leave her. Because I don't want to go to the gym that much. <laughs> well, listen, me neither. Well, I want to thank Eva and everybody at the University of Utah College of Nursing. Eva wants to know, Chris, how we pick the battles we cover on the show. Well, Eva, it starts with a lot of drinking, usually cheap Margaritaville tequila. Things that make you go puke. Then Chris slurs something about wanting to do a certain battle. I shoot him down and pick the battle I actually have some books on. Then Chris, slack-jawed, plays on his cell phone, and we watch movies until 3 in the morning. That's how the magic happens. That's how podcast champions are made, Luke. <laughs> you don't get to be the best Midland podcast in Portugal by not drinking and watching movies until 3 a.m. Come on, man. <laughs> That's right. And we want to give a shout-out to all our listeners in Portugal. Thanks for putting us in the top 100. Okay, tonight we are knee-deep in our second Punic War series. The last episode, we highlighted the utter genius of Hannibal Barca. And today, we're talking about the Battle of Matoris. This battle is the Gettysburg and Stalingrad of the Second Punic War and was a major turning point of the war. You had a book on this? How do we even know what happened? We, it could easily you. made up, like the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, or the Democratic Party. Uh, listen, I have multiple books on this. Check out the show notes on the website. We know what happened because we have multiple sources and we have archaeological ruins of the cities that were destroyed, along with monuments saying, Here, the Roman Scipio decimated the Carthaginian town of Utica. So yeah, we know what happened. It's not like the Easter Bunny. But before we can do anything, we have to do the most important thing. Let's I get some chicken wings. I love chicken wings. No, let's crack open a few cold ones, baby. All right, tonight we're drinking Bira Moretti. Bira Moretti was first brewed in 1859 in Udine, Italy. The beer is a pale lager and comes in at 4.8% alcohol. This beer has a smooth, well-balanced malt flavor, slight hop aroma, and crisp flavor that cleanses the palate. All right, let's see what we're working with here. Chris, what do you think about this beer? Ah, it's a great beer. I'm glad we're not drinking Peroni, the Sweetwater Blue of Italian beer. <laughs> well, actually, Peroni's not that bad, but it is like Bud Light or Miller Light. Or yeah, Peroni's okay. Yeah, but this is much better. This has more, more, more flavor to it. It's very crisp, very distinct. It's a good beer. Love yeah, uh, I'm going to give this beer... 3.5 bullets out of 5. This is a good beer. It's not a great beer. Beer Moretti is the plain girl at the dance, hoping you'll notice her, but you never do. It's an okay beer. Nothing more, nothing less. I can see this beer going well with pizza. Nope. I said chicken wings. Does Italy have any of those? Yeah, I really don't know. Uh, Italian listeners, write in. Let us know if you have chicken wings. Because uh, chicken wings are awesome. <laughs> Buffalo sauce, some ranch, blue cheese if you got it. All right, Chris, it's not the Chicken Wing Enthusiast Podcast, okay? <laughs> it should be. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, I came up with Battlecast. All right, speaking of Battlecast, let's switch gears and talk about the Battle of Mataris. There is no other state in the ancient world that could have endured those defeats and kept on fighting. Anyone else would have given in at this point. The Romans will not consider that. It is not an option as far as they're concerned. They either win or they are destroyed, and Rome, the Republic, ceases to be. First, Rome rebuilds its armies. The old rules on who could join the army are relaxed. Boys are enlisted into the legions. 
Slaves are promised freedom if they sign up. Criminals and debtors are promised amnesty. The war tax is increased. It's the time when they were pushed to the very brink of extinction. And yet, they stand there, they're not bowed. It's not just the aristocratic leaders who want to keep on fighting. Roman citizens are willing to keep serving in the army. They'll keep on fighting. They feel it is their duty to the state. They feel they have a stake in what's happening and that the fate of the Republic is something that is worth fighting and dying for. Now, the Battle of Matoris took place in the spring of 207 BC and was fought on the eastern side of the Italian peninsula, about 100 miles northeast of Rome. Chris, you want to do those battle stats for us? Sure thing, good buddy. On the Roman side, we have approximately 47,000 Romans, led by Marcus Livius Salinator? Salinator. And Gaius Claudius Nero. On the Carthaginian side, we have about 30,000 soldiers, led by Hannibal's brother, Hasdrubal Barca. All these numbers are estimates. Many historians believe the Battle of Metaurus... <laughs> was the most decisive battle in the Second Punic War. As Drubal is outnumbered, but he has ten war elephants. <laughs> I tried to make Chris say that phrase that he just repeated three times. And I fast. said elephants perfectly. He did say elephants perfectly. Well, you, guys, now the Carthaginian general is Hasdrubal Barca. He is Hannibal Barca's brother, and he showed tremendous strategic ability when he outmaneuvered Roman armies in Spain and bypassed Roman forces seeking to block his passage through the Alps. The way he did that was masterful. Instead of marching along the Mediterranean coast from Gaul into Italy, Hasdrubal made a wide circle northeast into Gaul and then south into Italy, crossing the Alps in only two months. Now, it had taken Hannibal five months to do the same thing. As Hasdrubal moves through Gaul, he is raising reinforcements from the surrounding Celtic tribes. This circuitous route completely baffles the Romans, and he appears out of nowhere in northern Italy in the spring of 207 B.C. like a tornado or a typhoon, destroying cities. Wait a minute, Luke. Where's Gaul? That sounds French. Yeah, Roman Gaul is in modern-day France, but this is before Julius Caesar subdued it. So Hasdrubal is marching through this wild, hostile territory. Now let's talk about Hasdrubal's plan. At this time, Hannibal is in southern Italy holding a large number of subject cities. Hasdrubal's plan is to march south and link up with Hannibal's forces somewhere in the middle of Italy. Then, united, the two combined armies will march on Rome and crush the city once and for all. If these two Carthaginian armies meet, it will finally give Hannibal the battering ram he needs to bust through the Roman walls. The problem is there's about 150 miles separating Hannibal and Hasdrubal. Accordingly, Hasdrubal sends six hand-picked cavalrymen, elite soldiers, with a letter for Hannibal. They ride across the length of Italy undetected, but when they are just four miles away from Hannibal's army, they are captured by Roman forces. The letter is sent to the Roman consul and army commander Claudius Nero. In it, Claudius finds Hasdrubal's plan spelled out in minute detail, including the number of his troops. This is war-winning intelligence. Nero decides to take the cream of his army that is opposing Hannibal's army in southern Italy and lead a 240-mile dash across Italy in order to link his elite troops with the forces under the command of Marcus Livius Salinator. In effect, 
Nero is executing Hasdrubal's own plan before he can. Instead of two Carthaginian armies meeting to march on Rome, two Roman armies will meet to crush Hasdrubal and his Carthaginians. Not the Drubes! <laughs> yeah, he's going to get crushed. We'll, we'll see. Now here is how the Roman historian Livy describes Nero's epic march from the south of Italy. Quote, Nero, now that he had already made his distance from the enemy such that it was quite safe to reveal his plan, briefly addressed his soldiers. He said that no plan of any general in the world had been in appearance more reckless, but in fact it had been safer than any before. He was leading them to certain victory. That a second consul and a second army had arrived would put their victory beyond a doubt. Hearsay, he said, decides a war and slight influences move men in the direction of hope and of fear. Of the glory at least to be derived from success, they would themselves reap almost the whole benefit. The soldiers themselves could see by what throngs of people, by what admiration, by what approval their march was acclaimed. And in fact, Nero's men were marching everywhere between lines of men and women who had poured out from their farms on every side of the road. And amidst their vows and prayers and word of praise, they praised the brave defenders of their homeland. Defenders of the state, men called them. Champions of the city of Rome and of the empire. And their weapons in their right hands, those people said, were placed their own safety and freedom and those of their very children. And they kept imploring all the gods and goddesses that the soldiers might have a successful march, a favorable battle, and a prompt victory over the enemy. Then they vied with each other in invitations and offers and importuning them to take from them in preference to others whatever would serve the men themselves and their beasts. And they heaped everything upon Nero's men generously. The soldiers competed in self-restraint, not to take more than they needed. There was no loitering, no straggling, no halt, except while taking food. They marched day and night. They gave to rest hardly enough time for the needs of their bodies. And men had been sent in advance by Nero to his colleague to announce their coming and to inquire whether he wished them to come secretly or openly by day or by night to establish themselves in the same camp or in another. It was thought best that they should enter by night in secret. End. Quote. Chris, what do you think of Nero's epic march? Oh, that's fantastic. You know, Pretty just, just gather everybody up and we're going to march over there and well, we're going to put the herd on the Druze. I, wa- I want to uh, emphasize he only took the cream of his army. He left a rump army to oppose and screen his movements in the south. So Hannibal still thinks his army's there, but the best troops, the most elite troops, the, the, the rangers, the delta force of Nero's army has just marched north and linked up. So Nero's army was probably was encamped in the south, and when the Romans encamped, they built fortress. They built whole fortresses. And, That's and right. Like a That's small right. city is what their battle pl- is part. Major what, part of their battle plan, right? What Nero is doing is screening Hannibal. He's mirroring Hannibal, and he, he's acting as a barrier for Hannibal. So now that he's left, Hannibal. If Hannibal finds out that army's weak, he could crush it, or he could march north and try to link up with Hasdrubal. Now, what Nero did was technically illegal in Rome. There was a law that prevented a consul from marching his army beyond the province assigned to him. Nero sent Hasdrubal's letter to the Roman Senate and marched out of his province anyway, disregarding the laws of Rome in order to preserve them. Nero seems like a strong man trying to gain glory, but also solve huge problems for the Roman state. You know, I agree, and this is an important point for political philosophy. As famed scholar Carl Schmitt notes, sovereign is he who decides on the exception. By exception, Schmitt is talking about a ruler disregarding laws and exercising naked power in order to preserve a legal order. We can see that Nero's actions completely fit in with that definition. 
proving yet another example of Schmidt's genius. Hey, Schmidt. <laughs> now, at this point in Hasdrubal's campaign, he is ravaging northern Italy. Remember, he caught the Romans completely by surprise. Here's how Edward Creasy describes the initial stages of the campaign. Quote, Hasdrubal had raised the siege of Placentia and was advancing towards Arminium on the Adriatic and driving before him the Roman army. Even when the consul Livius had come up and united the second and third armies of the north, Livius could not make headway against the Carthaginian invaders. The Romans still fell back before Hesdrubal, beyond Metaurus, and as far as the little town of Sina to the southeast of the Metaurus River. End quote. Hesdrubal was seeking to outmaneuver the Romans and leak up with his brother, but fate had other plans for him. Everything was going wrong for Hesdrubal. Modern historians T.A. Dory and D.R. Dudley describe Hesdrubal's misfortunes. Quote, his native gods deserted him, and when he reached the Matoris River, he could not find the fords. The army wandered in circles round the windings of the river. Men got lost in the darkness, and others fell out through exhaustion. At daybreak, when he hoped to find a crossing, the river was flowing between high banks, which got steeper as he went inland. As he was trying to fortify a camp on a hill above the river, the Romans caught up with him. First Nero with the cavalry, then Livius with the infantry. Ready for immediate battle. End quote. And now we'll leave Hasdrubal with his heart in his throat, deciding what to do about the two Roman armies knocking on his camp door. It's time for General versus General. All right, and General versus General, we compare the two commanders who are facing each other in tonight's podcast. On the Carthaginian side, we have Hasdrubal Barca, a veteran commander and son of one of Carthage's best generals, Hamilcar Barca. The Druze has commanded armies in Spain for years. He was constantly being overruled by, Parth- by politicians in Carthage. He won a few victories, lost a few battles in Spain, until his brilliant march on a long route through Gaul and into northern Italy, bypassing the Roman armies, sent to block his movements. He really was a mediocre general. In a lot of ways, he kind of reminds me of Joseph E. Johnson, constantly being meddled with by President Davis, usually on the defensive. Well, yeah, and on the Roman side, we have patrician Gaius Claudius Nero. Livy tells us that Nero was well-respected by the elite in Rome. Here's how Livy describes him, quote, Above all the rest in Rome was Gaius Claudius Nero. The political elite considered Nero a remarkable man, to be sure, but more hasty and violent than the war situation and Hannibal as an enemy demanded. They thought his violent nature must be tempered by giving him as a colleague a man of moderation and foresight, end quote. Nero likes to f***ing have some violence with it, with it, more violence. Yes, Luke, Nero is a violent general. I love violent generals. They're the cock rock of awesome generalness back in the day. <laughs> Nero, gonna get some violence with it, with it, more. But you have to remember, this is Nero's first command of an army. Before this, all he held was various lower positions in the Roman government, which he always performed well, so well, in fact, that he was named Roman Consul in 208 B.C. Yes, folks, we all have to remember, this is, we're talking about the Roman Republic, not the Empire. In these days, Rome still had a very strong Senate, and these senators would be appointed to command these armies. They would be rich, prominent politicians looking to make, looking to make greater waves in Roman society. The, the leaders weren't professional, but all the soldiers were. Well, Chris, I gotta ask: If you are you're a Roman, right, or you're a Carthaginian, which one do you want commanding you? All right, if you could have your choice of either of these commanders, which one would you want? Um, 
I mean, I don't know the composition of Hannibal's army, but I do like the way the Roman army is always structured because they have strong non-commissioned officers, what we would consider sergeants and NCOs, mm-hmm. centurions, I mm-hmm. think they were called, commanding the lesser, leg- the, lesser le- the lesser legionnaires. So while the overall general strategy might not be as great as professional generals like Hannibal or his brother Hasdrusel, um, you still have a strong core in the army to lean on. Yeah. To keep the commander from making huge mistakes. So you would go for Nero. I would go for Nero. I tell you, Hasdrubal's a bit of a toss-up. I mean, his his career in Spain has been lackluster. He hasn't really had a lot of victories. He's had some victories. He did that brilliant maneuver when he went around the Roman army who was trying to block him along the Mediterranean coast in what is modern-day France, around the Marseille area. He sensed that. He saw that. He had the gumption and the foresight to go around that and cross the Alps. And he did that in two months. I think Hasdrubal is trying to live up to his big brother's image here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the Druze is definitely, you know, he, he's got some stuff going on for him, but he's on he, he's on visiting team soil right now. <laughs> and as we, as we just discussed, he's having trouble maneuvering the territory. doesn't know the ground. That's true. So he's, the Romans are coming up behind him. They're coming up behind him. But he's, he's been covering his bases hard in this campaign. And when I was reading the sources for this, I kept thinking about, you're going to laugh at me, Faramir and Boromir from Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah. And like, Hannibal is Boromir, you know. He's, he's the father's favorite. He dies but, in the first book? Well, yeah, but still. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Faramir is kind of like Hasdrubal, you know what I mean? Uh, he, he's trying, trying to live up to his father's legacy. It's his brother's legacy, and... He's really coming through this time, just like Faramir does in, in the movies in the book. That's eh, probably a fair comparison. All right, so you ready to transition to the next segment? Yeah, let's move on. Let's do it. All right, so Nero has just arrived with his elite troops and merged them with Marcus Salinator's army. I can't get over that guy's name. The Salinator. The Salinator. He even made them double up in tents so as not to alert the Carthaginians that reinforcements had arrived. Now, I like that. I respect that. <laughs> I bet you would there. <laughs> double Shut double up. up a bunch of dudes in tents, huh? You know what? That little segment of conversation has been our relationship for the last 20 years. Ever since we doubled up in that tent. <laughs> oh, God. What are you doing with that copy of Brokeback Mountain? Stop <laughs> yeah, it, Chris. I just want you to read it. All right, stop. All right, so... He made them double up in tents so as not to alert the Carthaginians, or Chris, that reinforcements had arrived. And that night, Nero and Salinator met for a conference. Many of the Roman leaders advised Nero to rest his troops who were worn out from such a long march. Here is Nero's brilliant response. Nobody got any rest in those doubled up tents? <laughs> no. We're doing Nero's response. Here we go. Quote, Whoever is forgiving time for my men here to rest themselves is forgiving time to Hannibal to attack my men, whom I've left in the camp in Apua. He's forgiving time to Hannibal and Hasdrubal to discover my march and to maneuver for a junction with each other at their leisure. We must fight instantly while both the foe here and the foe in the south are ignorant of our movements. We must destroy this Hasdrubal and I must be back in Apua with my army before Hannibal awakes from his torpor and crushes them. End quote. I know when I wait for my torpor. Yeah, I, uh, when you get up at I'm 12 in the afternoon, unemployed. Uh, <laughs> I wish I was unemployed. Yeah, he's not unemployed. All right, so now Hasdrubal is no simpleton, all right? So even though the Roman camp has not been enlarged, Hasdrubal notices, I love this, the horn that calls the Romans' camp to order, the alarm clock of the Roman army, sounds more times than normal. Now, he's been screening the Romans for years, and he knows how many soldiers should be in that camp. And when he hears the extra alarm clock, 
instantly Hasdrubal suspects that there's been reinforcements to the Roman army. Now, Hasdrubal doesn't know for sure, but in war, it's always best to assume the worst thing has happened and prepare for the worst scenario. Accordingly, Hasdrubal decides to avoid the reinforced Roman army at all costs and link up with his brother in southern Italy. Go, Druze! The Druze. Now, the first day, Hasdrubal kept his army behind his entrenchments, and the Romans did not attack at all. That night, Hasdrubal secretly led his army north towards the Matoris River, hoping to put the river between himself and the Roman army. Edward Creasy describes what happened next, quote, His guides betrayed him, and having purposely led him away from the part of the river that was fordable, they made their escape in the dark, and left Hasdrubal and his army wandering in confusion along the steep bank. At last they halted, and when day dawned on them, Hasdrubal found that great numbers of his men in their fatigue had lost all discipline and subordination, and that many of his Gallic auxiliaries had gotten drunk. The Roman cavalry were on his hills, the infantry not far behind. It was hopeless for Hasdrubal to think of continuing his retreat. He therefore ordered his men to prepare for battle instantly, and made the best arrangement of them that the nature of the ground would permit. End quote. His Frenchman got drunk? His Frenchman literally got drunk. Why am I thinking about DMB and food and the gallons of wine again? Now... I'm thinking of a bunch of guys with uh, baguettes and pencil-thin mustaches on bicycles looking up with this North African guy and be like, hey, dude, we're drunk. <laughs> we're Not going to happen. <laughs> Yet again, I'm thinking about you at my wedding. Anyways, now Hasdrubal <laughs> doesn't have many Carthaginian men with him. His best troops are Spanish veterans. He had little cavalry. His few Carthaginian men he put in line with his Spanish veterans on his right wing. On the left, he put the drunken Gauls, who I'm sure were sobering up by this time. <laughs> they need some Waffle House. He put the Gauls on the left because the ground was so rugged. He hoped it would delay the Romans engaging them until the battle had been won by his veterans on the right wing of the army. He put his ten war elephants in front of his battle line, and each of the war elephants' drivers had a mallet and a stake. If the elephant began to attack the Carthaginians, the driver was ordered to kill the elephant by driving the stake into the elephant's neck. Hasdrubal's oh. army is greatly outnumbered. Not the elephants. Yeah, the elephant. Got to kill them. Yeah, that's a dick move, bro. <laughs> the Romans placed their cavalry on the left flank, and their main battle line was composed of three rows. Now, here's the standard Roman battle order. In the first row, they had the group called the Hastat Hastati. Hastati. Sorry, I can never say that. Hastati is the correct way to say it. In the second row were the princeps, and in the back, the third row, was the triorii. This was the reserve. Now, the triorii are like the safety in a football game. They always come in if the play's going wrong. You see what I mean? So each of the Roman infantry is armed with two spears and a short sword, and these are the two armies facing each other on the banks of the Matoris River tonight on Battlecast. The battle began with the Carthaginian elephants attacking the Roman front lines. The elephants broke the front ranks of the Roman army and put them in disorder. Many fell back. Meanwhile, the Roman right wing attempted to attack the drunken Gauls, but was so severely hampered by the terrain and baguettes. And baguettes. That precisely what Hasdrubal wanted to happen. The terrain bogged them down, and they couldn't get at the Gauls who were behind this difficult terrain. Hasdrubal, noting that his Gauls were safe, then threw his veterans on the right side of his line into the Roman left wing. The slaughter was great, but the Romans held. Just barely. It was then, frustrated by his inability to attack the inebriated Gauls, that Nero delivered a master stroke. Viva la Gaul! Edward Creasy describes the event. 
quote, Willing a brigade of his best men round the rear of the rest of the Roman army, Nero fiercely charged the flank of the Spaniards and Carthaginians. The charge was as successful as it was sudden. Rolled back in disorder upon each other, and overwhelmed by numbers, the Spaniards died, fighting gallantly to the last men. The Gauls were then surrounded and butchered almost without resistance. Hasdrubal, after having done all that a general could do, when he saw that the victory was irreparably lost, scorning his own life, he spurred his horse into the midst of a Roman cohort, where, sword in hand, he met the death that was worthy of the son of Hamilcar Barca and the brother of Hannibal. End. Quote, I want to reiterate what Nero did because it was very risky. Because of the difficult terrain, he can't attack the Gauls. So he disengages his troops and sends them around the back of the entire Roman line, like a running back circling behind an offensive line at football. And he attacks the elite of the Carthaginians on the flank or the side. There was no more that immortal men could do. The Carthaginian right wing has Drupal's best elite troops buckled, died, or retreated. Run away! Run away! (laughs) Meanwhile, the Roman cavalry had driven the Carthaginian cavalry from the field and came back and joined in mopping up the Carthaginian army. It was a bloodbath. Now I want you to think about watching your line collapse around you. I want you to close your eyes and feel the fear those Carthaginians must have felt as they saw hundreds of angry troops descending on your position, slicing you with razor-sharp spears and sword. And every time you cut a piece of cheese, just think how easy it would be to cut you. And men wept, and men fled, and men died. And historians T.A. Dory and D.R. Dudley describe the battle aftermath. Quote, The Romans killed perhaps 15,000 of the enemy. They took some 10,000 prisoners and won immense booty. Their own losses were about 8,000 men. The northern arm of the Carthaginian pincers had been utterly destroyed and the threat removed from Rome and central Italy. Claudius Nero rode back faster than he had come and reached Lerinium, where Hannibal had finally halted in six days. End quote. Now, Chris, that reminds me of you in high school. You always had girls with a lot of booty. Oh, you got like booty, man. <laughs> Jung in the trunk. <laughs> now, Livy explains the Roman response to the Battle of Metaurus. Here's how the Roman people greeted this victory. Quote, The Senate decreed a three days thanksgiving because the consuls Livius and Nero had preserved their own armies in safety and destroyed the army of the enemy and its commander. C. Hostilius, the praetor, issued the order for its observance. The services were attended by men and women alike. The temples were crowded all through three days, and the matrons in their most splendid robes, accompanied by their children, offered their thanksgiving to the gods as free from anxiety and fear as though the war were over. I just want to interject. These people are getting ready for church. It's like they had church for three days, but church like you've never had it before in your life. It's like Christmas with food everywhere. They're... They're drinking, but they're not getting drunk. They're just having a wonderful time because their fears are relieved. Now Livy picks up the story. This victory also relieved the financial position. People ventured to do business again, just as in a time of peace, buying and selling, lending and repaying loans. After Nero had returned to camp, he gave orders for Hasdrubal's head, which he had kept and brought with him to be thrown in the front of the enemy's outpost and the Carthaginian prisoners to be exhibited just as they were in chains and rags. Two of them were released with orders to go to Hannibal and report all that had happened. Stunned by the blow which had fallen on his country and his own family, it is said that Hannibal declared that he recognized the doom which awaited Carthage. He broke up his camp and decided to concentrate in Brutium, 
the remotest corner of Italy, all his supporters whom he could no longer protect, while scattered in their different cities, he brought them all to Brutium. The whole population of Metabontum had to leave their homes together with all the Lucanians who had acknowledged his supremacy. They were all singly transported into Brutian territory. End quote. Hannibal withdrew into Brutium. He was scarcely to leave it again until he embarked for Carthage and took command of the army that would decide the fate of the Carthaginian Empire for all time at the Battle of Zama. But that's another podcast. What? We're stopping? Already? Come on, man. Give me some more pot. <laughs> no, man. It's a good stopping point. The end of the most decisive battle in the war. Next month, we'll talk about the end of the Second Punic War and the Battle of Zama. Thanks for listening, folks. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Visit the website at thebattlecast.com. And if you have a question, comment, or a concern over Luke's reading disability or that ugly-ass haircut, (laughs) send it to us at thebattlecastnet at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook if you're lucky. You know, I just want to give a big unthank you to Facebook for shutting down all my Facebook account. He's been I, working very hard. I've worked very hard. I've set up two Facebook accounts, and I set them up wrong because I knew next to nothing about social media a month ago. But I'm learning people. You're a smart guinea. <laughs> Anyways, I want you all to know that I cherish and appreciate you listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me personally that you let me come and sit in your car with you and drink on your deck with you. I don't take that lightly. I want you to know that I put my soul into this little podcast. The civilizations and the men who gave their lives are worth it. And you are worth it. We do try to read every one of the emails you send us, and it helps us keep going. And to sing us out is Emil and Daryl playing Eye of the Tiger. Check out the music and book references in the show notes on the websites. We're going to have the battle maps up on the website, too. You can see the battle along with listening to it if you go to the website. And that's it for me. I'll be back next month to remind you why you need to be happy when you're sitting in a stupid, interminable meeting. You could have been a drunken gall getting massacred by Romans. And be content with what you have. That is great wisdom. Hebrews 34. And this is Luke wishing you all good times and good weather with good people. Bye, everybody! Bye! Bye.